0: Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage-breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is part one of a two-part interview with Dan Barber on Chef's Story.
1: Hello, and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today I am not at Roberta's, and I am not at the International Culinary Center. I am very lucky, because I am up at Stone Barns with Dan Barber. Um, and today, so welcome, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> All right. It's nice to, thanks for having me up at Stone Barns. Um Normally, we talk about somebody's past and you know how they got to be a chef, but I think there's a lot written about you. And if we have some uh, listeners out there who don't know much about you, uh, you can just Google Dan Barber and you'll, you're going to find out his past life. Uh, but I think there's so many concepts, issues, um, ideas that you are you are the center or the heartbeat for. That I'd like to take today's program and sort of go off script and and talk about them. And you've just published a book, the Third Plate, and it's really taking on the. F- not the food industry per se, but all of us involved in the food industry uh, to look more deeply on how we source and, and uh, use our foods and how we construct our plates of, of eating. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit and start there. Yeah. So I'm going to have to ask that. Uh, come closer. Come, oh, I'd love that. <laughs> um, so here's my issue with the third plate is um, I think what you're trying to say is we have to uh, be respectful of the earth and therefore have to move protein Meat centric, fish centric, middle of the plate, twelve ounces. Um, we have to rethink that because it's not responsible. It's not sustainable um, for the world. And um, I agree with that, you know. And looking long term, but I don't think it's a new notion because if you look at the countries where there have been, ch- they've been challenged with population and with geography, they moved that off the plate centuries ago. I'm talking India, Southeast Asia, Asia, that they don't eat. They eat minimal uh, ounces of protein. So why are people looking at the third plate and saying it's revolutionary? (laughs)
0: Okay, so um, I think you're right. It's not a, and I don't claim that this idea of 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 getting away from protein centric plates of food is a is a revolutionary new approach to eating. I'm suggesting that, um, in fact. Uh, it is a very old way of eating, as you mentioned, uh, and it's it, and what I talk about in the book, in terms of my research, is that it's the basis. The third plate is really the basis of all great cuisines of any cuisine. A uh, cuisine, by definition, is great because it's lasted thousands of years. Um, and so, if, when when you look at how those cu- cuisines evolved, f- French cuisine, uh, you know, we we have. An understanding, American understanding of French cuisine, really French cuisine, as you know, is is dozens, hundreds, actually, of micro cuisines, just as Italian cuisine is, and and, and Chinese, just Southern Chinese cuisine alone, is thousands of of iterations based on on micro regions and micro ecologies. All of these cuisines evolved out of out of a negotiation that the peasants were making with the landscape. You know, what could the landscape provide, and how could they uh, make it nutritious and delicious? Uh, in terms of a diet, that's the genesis of every cuisine. So, so it's not
1: built out of responsibility,
0: no, no or sensitivity. No, no. It's always
1: built out of what
0: the land food. can provide, and,
1: and, and the more and luxurious, the better.
0: The more luxurious, the better. But it was as as all cuisines tell us, true cuisines, which is really the heart. I mean, there's a distinction between the Americanization of. Of Chinese, of Cantonese food, or Sichuanese food, or Japanese food, or or Southern French food, or, or Northern Italian food. Those are, we we have interpretations of them in America based on a very abundant landscape. But the true, if you look at it from from the, as in you go to the villages from which they're they're famous for their their suite of dishes that represent their cooking. They're all based on none of them have protein central plates of food because the land could never support that. That was an anomaly. It is an anomaly because it's an American anomaly. We're a very young country, and we have this freakish soil fertility, uh, and we have this environment in many parts of this country that produce incredible abundance. Uh, it is the underpinning of what we call the breadbasket to the world, and and we have fashioned a, a expectation for a plate of food. I wouldn't call it a cuisine because I don't. My part of my search in this book is what is American cuisine, and I never really came to it. To a, to a good definition of it, because there isn't one. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's regional a, cuisine. There are there are regional... The only regional cuisine that I could really look at, and, and again, I'm, I'm defining cuisine in a very narrow sense. I'm combining it as a pattern of eating that supports what a, what the landscape can provide. Right. Okay, so I look at Southern cooking as like a very good example of that. The Carolina Rice Kitchen, Creole cooking, I mean, all of those evolved really out of hardship. They, the Carolina Rice Kitchen came out of uh, out, of, um, uh, out of a soil crisis in the 1820s, which is when farmers dropped their plows and they started moving out west. They plowed up the prairie. Uh, and the ones who were left behind were struggling to figure out, you know, how do we produce food in, in soil that is failing and failing rapidly? And, and this is when the government opened up the Midwest and, and encouraged farmers to come out and settle the Midwest and to, to, to farm for free. Uh, the ones who were left behind is a very interesting story of how Southern cuisine came to be. But, it, but, but at its root, it came out of out of um, out of desperation. And it was how do you get the the rice, for example, which was such a big part of, of Southern not only culture but economy. We were we were export. we were the largest grower of rice in the world. We were exporting it to every country in the world. And, and what
1: years? 18, in Nineteenth
0: century. 18, the, yeah. the 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 early eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Through the 1810s and then things really started to decline very rapidly and so the question was how do you produce really rice and other crops for which you know uh, uh, southerners were both enjoying and exporting how do you get the fertility back and that 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 began this period of experimentation and for twenty and thirty and forty years, where where you, you read, I read historical documents of of, of of hundreds of varieties of rutabaga were planted to figure out well what grew really well in that and what and what provided the right kind of fertility and broke up disease cycles and repelled pests and all of this, you know, massive scale of experimentation. A lot was of it slaves. Slaves and slaves were bringing and slave over. Slave owners, and well, well, plantation owners were encouraging it and allowing it because they too were seeing the drops in fertility that were that had been that never been seen before, and so slaves were taking what they had knew from from North Africa, Africa. and they were implementing rotations for the first time. That's where you get dishes like like hop and john. I mean hop and john is not a dish of rice, it's a dish of rice and beans. They you needed the beans to get the leguminous crop to give you the nitrogen in the soil that allowed you to have the rice. And you needed um, collard greens because collard greens desalinated the soil. And the soil was, was salty and filled and, and, and degrading the soil. And collard greens as Africans knew Desalinated the soil, so you had that as part of the dish, and then you had this sort of smattering of pork. It wasn't a, any kind of center-cut piece of pork; it was it was cut up, cured pieces of fat. And while well, the pigs were running free in the lush forests of the of east of the Mississippi, when it rained, you know, lots of rainfall, and you had these these very fat pigs, which became a big part of Southern cuisine. But anyway, encapsulated in that one dish, nitrogen-fixing leguminous crop delicious and healthful plate of rice along with collard greens. You had a nutritious and delicious plate. Iconic southern so it's, dish. So it's
1: like India or China. It's, it's like any China. of the
0: cuisines. That's why I call it cuisine. So when you say regional cuisines, you know, I got in a lot of trouble a couple weeks ago. I was out in California and someone in the audience, I was in LA and someone said you know the California cuisine. And oh, well, I said, that, I said what is that? I don't know what that is. What is California cuisine? I don't know. You know Michael
1: McCartney and John Waxman. You yeah, know, those are, and,
0: and, those, Waters, and those are great yeah. she, all yeah. great chefs, but yeah. they are celebrating Provence. products. No, well, they, they, okay. they were, they were all
1: influenced by Europe and freshness and seasonality. Yes, and, and, that, and
0: that table movement. And that's because you are cherry picking great products supports a landscape. You are celebrating the abundance of really soil fertility. So you can point to great tomatoes, you can point to great plant and great zucchini, all the things that I got at the farmer's market this morning, or corn or wheat on the grain level. And that is what America has produced over the last 250 years in great abundance because of soil fertility, because environmental conditions allow us to eat high on the hog. My argument of the third plate is that those crops, while you can get them from a local farmer and celebrate their regionality and their distinctiveness and their deliciousness, they are, from a soil perspective, very greedy. A tomato is, is, is the equivalent of eating a rack of pork, a loin of pork. It's eating high on the hog because it requires a lot of real estate, it requires a lot of time, and it requires a ton Why? of soil fertility and a ton of... It's a resource sucker. It's the hummer. Of the vegetable world. That's what it is. But but what we, it's not to say that I don't.
1: Have you it, called it the hummer of the
0: vegetable world? Before? I think I have, I think probably I've called some other things the hummers. We, <laughs> okay. we, we we forget that wheat, wheat is the hummer of the grain world. Corn, we all know corn is a huge environmental, resource intensive crop. So is wheat, so are tomatoes, so are zucchini, so are eggplant. And so to call oneself, as I have called myself, I'll point all the vectors at me because I was this guy I was the guy who was saying you know farm to table is the way to opt out of the industrial who's this the way we're eating which is not only bad for us but bad for the environment and totally unsustainable we've got to connect with farmers we've got to celebrate these great ingredients there's nothing wrong with that per se what was wrong with it which is what I was saying going a step further and saying this is the way to look at the future of eating. And it's not, because the land will not support that in the growing population or any kind of population over the long haul if we don't think about eating, if we don't think about our diets from the entire farm perspective. The entire farm perspective says, ask the question, what are the crops that are going in before your tomatoes are planted that's giving you the fertility that allows you to have those tomatoes.
1: And not raping the soil.
0: And not depleting the soil. We've got to think of the soil as a bank account. That's the best analogy that was told to me. It's not my idea. It was told to me from a farmer that I became sort of the hero of this book, Klaus Martins. And he had made this beautiful analogy. Every time we eat, we're eating from a withdrawal from the bank account. And and the bank account is soil, and you have to pay back the bank account. And when you eat a tomato, you're making a very large withdrawal from your bank account. When you eat wheat, you're making a very large Corn is a huge withdrawal. So what you need to do is either put back nutrients through compost, which on a, on a market garden or a, or a vegetable garden in your backyard is a very smart and efficient way. But in a bigger farm scenario, community farms, larger farms, mid, even mid-sized farms, you don't go and compost 1,000 acres. Um, so you have to figure out a way. You know, you can graze animals, and they drop their manure, and that's one way to restore fertility soil. But another way to restore fertility soil, and the way that all cuisines evolved restoring fertility soil, is by rotating in crops that don't require a lot of soil fertility, but actually add fertility. These are crops in the grain world, like barley, buckwheat, uh, millet, uh, uh, leguminous crops, like uh, nitrogen-fixing leguminous crops like beans, and cover crops like vetch and clover. This is the whole suite of, of rotations that so, farmers need to get the fertility for the crops right. that we. Cut so, in. are
1: you saying? So, my point
0: is, we need to eat that whole thing.
1: Right, right. So, are you saying that to be a responsible steward of the earth, you should only be eating um, crops? that can renew the soil, that are uh, working towards the seasonality and the location. And therefore, it's almost immoral to eat a tomato
0: no, I'm saying because I just ate a tomato for dinner, so I took plate. Well, you might be immoral. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? true. True. No, I I think there's nothing wrong with celebrating but tomatoes, just as there's nothing wrong with is, celebrating it, a good steak. But wait, wait, but, wait. If but, you're
1: a drought, if you're drought challenged by like California, right? And how much water does it take to produce a lot? So, like- but
0: my point is, if you're eating in the context of a cuisine. And remember again, my definition is: what does the land tell you it can provide? And then
1: California is telling you you can't provide well, tomatoes.
0: Well, well, but it's telling you this these these last few years. But you know, overall, California is also a good place to grow tomatoes uh, if you have abundant uh, uh, you know water from the Sierras. I'm not saying you need to export those tomatoes all over the world. I'm saying if you're living California and you're enjoying a tomato, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What I think is wrong with It is if you eat tomatoes or you eat corn or you eat wheat with such excess in your diet and call yourself a sustainable eater because you're you're connected to a local farmer. My point is that if you're eating in the context of true sustainability, you're eating with a lot of diversity, and within that diversity you're eating.
1: No, no, yeah. I don't want you
0: like, keep don't want to keep going on this Okay, yeah.
1: last two years Worst drought in the history of California right. They're but, fighting, but They're the fighting. They did expo- yeah, well California is manage.
0: exporting 80% uh, 85% of the food they produce 85% of the, of the Fertility of the soil is going Into the rest of the country and throughout the world That's not a very good Sustainable system for the future So, so what, what so do if people you, in New
1: Mexico do? I mean, what? you know, what do they grow? What do people in the, in the what r- they've always
0: grown, beans and and drought tolerant beans like temporary, which are so
1: they should oh, so no they should not take any no, tomatoes from California no no, no
0: because when there's rainfall and irrigation in Mexico, they should be celebrating the tomato because they've eaten basically a diet of beans and other crops that give you the necessary requisite fertility to enjoy a tomato. It's all about balance. It's not about, right, it's not so about black saying, and white. So you saying
1: if you're a resident of California, yeah. you can eat a tomato happily and responsibly. Of course. But if you eat that tomato in New York City, uh, you're, you're really squandering... Uh, Californian fertility.
0: You're squandering, you're eating, you're drinking water. But the Californians, Californians are the ones that are making shipping, money off of you're it. You're essentially shipping water across the country, is what you're doing. And they do Because tomato to is, is 90% uh, water. water. So you're shipping water across the country. That makes no sense. But is
1: there yeah. enough water to produce enough tomatoes for the, for the population of California?
0: For the is this po- oh, something sure, we have sure, to Sure, sure there is. Sure, there is. Oh my God. I mean, the tomato is nothing. If you're talking about grain fed beef, which is where Oh, not, I
1: saying, which is, is, is where eighty percent
0: area? of the water goes, so it's not the tomato that's sucking all that water it's the beef and it's the corn that's growing uh, in California to feed the beef cattle that's the, that's where the water is going dairy the dairy industry is where all the water goes it's not the, the specialty crop tomato let's put it this way if you're really talking on that scale, yeah grains, which is essentially corn, wheat, soy those are the top ones, represent uh, right now, as of today, 68% to almost 70% of our agriculture. 70% of our agricultural land is in those three grains. There's a lot of other grains in there, but the predominant ones are those three. Cotton is a big one. But those three represent almost 70% of our agricultural land. Vegetables are 5%. Your tomato. Is less than one percent.
1: So I can so it's eat, tomato, can eat it's a tomato. It's nothing.
0: It's just. It's more. It's more to look at it because we love tomatoes. And and I used to talk about tomatoes, a local heirloom tomato. From you know the Hudson Valley as the answer to you know the 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 malicious and 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 destructive industrial food chain. It's just it's just you've got to look at this. You know, there's a great expression in the farm table movement that's 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 called nose to tail eating, right? Of the of, well, you eat the whole animal and you don't expect to eat eat high on the hog, right? Well, but we should be thinking about that for the whole farm. We should be thinking nose to tail of the entire. Well, farm. you're
1: doing field to table now.
0: Field the table, but you have to think about the entire field, Field. not just not just the crops that we cover. The
1: cover crops,
0: the cover crops, the in-between crops, the crops that break up disease cycles, all the crops that farmers grow, but they consider them sunk costs because they know they don't have a market for it. So this is this is like this is the
1: easy solution because if you can make those crops delicious,
0: that's why I point the, the finger to chefs and I say you know for the immediate future in America. Since we don't really have a cuisine to fall back on, you know, I feel so I feel jealous of people like like Rene Redzepi. Well, I feel jealous of Rene Redzepi for a lot of reasons. He's a fantastic chef. He's a phenomenal person. But but one of the things that I that that I think about a lot is that chefs like Rene Redzepi uh, or Massimo Batura in Italy or Alex Atala in San Paolo. I'm going sort of throughout the world. Sean Brock in the south, is in 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 Charleston. You know, the, these. Chefs, these phenomenal chefs, have yet another advantage over most chefs in America, which is that we don't have a cuisine to fall back on. So part of their, part of their, their extraordinary gastronomical accomplishments has been that they are tethered to a tradition, to a cuisine. They're riffing on it, they're modernizing it, they're changing it, they're updating it, thinking about it for the future. But there's something that, that culturally you can, you can take hold of and run with. You can't do that here, where we're sitting right now in the Hudson Valley, because if you look at the history of Hudson Valley, there's no such thing as a cuisine. There's an abundance of agriculture products, but there's no pattern of eating that puts it together that that prevents us, me and you, and most everyone else, from indulging in. A, I, you know, I'm
1: trying okay. to think of France and Italy and yeah. Rene Redzepi, yeah, you know, uh, falling back on their cuisine. And uh,
0: No, I didn't say falling back. What I say is like reaching back and and looking in a very in very soft ways. I mean, what Rene Redzepi? I mean, what is what is Viking cuisine? You know, I don't, it's like herring. It's like there's, there's not a lot there. But what he's done is brilliantly extrapolate that history, that culture, that that sense of place, and create and launched it into the modern era of the chef to do that. I'm saying I'm I'm hobbled a bit. It's funny. I'm hobbled as I'm sitting amidst, you know, the the bounty. I'm, we're sitting ground zero of some of the best. This has been one of the best summers for fertility for for the for harvest, and we're sitting in, in the middle of August. So it's really about harvest time of everything. And and yet I'm saying I'm hobbled because I don't. We don't have a framework in in our country in America to reach back that that gives us a a prescription, a pattern a expectation for eating that really responds to what the landscape has. Wait, to wait.
1: Offer. I'm going to challenge you on that. You know I'm from Nova Scotia and, or my family. And yeah. was Born in New York. Chowder just perfectly uses the fish from the sea, salt pork, Potatoes, fantastic potatoes in the in the maritimes.
0: A fish chowder is a great example of a third plate item. I didn't say I invented it. I said that's a good example of where we need to go throughout our entire menu because a chowder is like a like a like a like a base. And, and it a uses. Trashier fish. You use a fish that that is that you can break up. It uses ever, the whole thing, and you create this delicious, iconic dish. Well, that's what we need to do with our whole menu.
1: And you know, uh, when I was growing up in New York, yeah. in Brooklyn,
0: yeah,
1: uh, we had fig trees.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, we had a garden with lettuce. Yeah. and you know what? We ate a lot of bluefish. My father used to go fishing off of head Bay. Right. And potatoes from Long Island. Right. And so, and potatoes took very well to our now. We probably bring the potatoes over from Europe. That's but nothing I wrong think, with that. My point and, is... And I'm thinking of the farms I would go to in upstate New York, and there were chickens on the farm, eggs on the farm, potatoes. And, and I think that is the European cuisines that came over here and found their... Uh,
0: it's not European cuisines that came over here. I disagree with that. It's European methods of methods. growing, okay. and it's European traditions around celebratory foods in large part. Not This is not, uh, you know, black and white. There are many examples. Bluefish is... Chicken
1: pot pie is a third chicken plate.
0: Chicken pot pie is a third plate. Casserole in many ways. A hot dog and a hamburger are third plates in many ways. If you're raising the right beef and... and and raising the right pigs, you've got a third plate there. You've got excess trimmings that are put together to make something delicious, I mean, in a bun. So
1: So, isn't that, I think chicken pot pie is, you know, a New York steak is that you came to New York and you went to a steakhouse, and it was those cowboys that were eating 12 ounces. Well, not the cowboys, not not the cowboys. If you look
0: at this, we've been eating, all uh, Americans have been eating the steak twice a day, seven days a week, as an expectation for dinner since, we, since, since going back to the beginning of, of this country. I always thought that we, harked, we should be hearkening back to a time when we ate sustainably and deliciously, and the truth is, and farmed sustainably. The truth is, there is no history of that in this country. We are a history of really bad farming, actually. Going back to the beginning, which is the people who came over here in the first place didn't own land. They didn't know how to farm. That, that's, that's the truth of that and I don't you know I spent a lot of time in the books of sort of
1: because they were merchants yeah, and yeah. adventurers yeah. And, and what and they flowers. got when they got
0: over here was incredible soil and rainfall and weather conditions that were conducive to growing a lot of great food the south is a perfect example of that until there was no more fertility and that's the 1820s. And you had this period of extraordinary excess food where you you've got people's diaries over here who said, I've never come to a place. It's like the Garden of Eden. It's, it's, the food, you, this is late 1700s. People are talking to me. You come over here and you have excess. And, and people say saying it's disgusting when Americans throw away and eat. That was all based in abundance. That was not brilliant farming so that, techniques. Back
1: then, we were Europeans who'd come over here. Yeah. Why did the Europeans do that in Europe.
0: Because, they because first of all, remember, they're many, many thousands of years older, right? right. And and Europe, uh, let's say, let's take Italy, uh, fits inside uh, California. So we, we are an enormous country. That's another thing I learned in the book, which is sort of obvious. But it's really not. When you look at it from a geographic scale, we have enormous... Ecologies of great variances. So we have many Europes inside the United States. But going back to the Europe example, why did not they do that? Because they couldn't afford it. They but they could, came over they here could, and did it here. They came over here and did it here and moved across the country. So it Europe. wasn't just that's America. virgin soil. Yes. That's virgin soil. So
1: isn't that just sort of in the DNA? Of that's the in the DNA. DNA. That's
0: why you have cuisine because cuisines prevent you from your worst gluttony. They don't allow you to eat a seven-ounce steak twice a day, seven days a week. They allow you to celebrate a seven-ounce steak, which is the same way they allow you to celebrate a tomato. But they don't say to you, you, as a citizen of the world... Allow your you are allowed to be gluttonous for just the foods that you want to eat. You are not allowed to dictate your diet on, and tell the land what it needs to produce. It's the other way around. So so whether it's a paleo diet or 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 a, or or a you know a, a, a steak and eggs dinner or whatever it is, it is we are presuming that we can tell the land what we want for our diets, and it will. It will that's an American presumption. Europe never had that luxury. Europe's. Cooking and traditions are based on eking out what the land could provide, just trying to figure out what it could provide and then making that delicious and and nutritious and in many ways uh, last long enough to go through the winter. I mean, that's the story of cuisine. And we have great cuisines, great traditions out of all of them. That's where we should look as Americans. And, and I think you're right. And you're the only one in all of these interviews I've had who's pointed to the chef. Well, of course you would. And I'll like put it <laughs> together. But you point to the chef, I think, as a, is, is, a, is a good place to point. Because we this is a heavy load for the American home cook to lift. And I think chefs can and, and are increasingly putting these pieces together in a way. You know, we don't go to a restaurant now. A fine dining restaurant, and if you go downstairs and have dinner tonight, which I hope you will, you're not going to eat lobster, caviar, and foie gras. Now, 20 years ago, you and I both know that was the expectation. If you didn't have something like that throughout your fine dining experience, you weren't in a fine dining restaurant. We forget that this is, chefs have turned this notion of fine dining on its head. Rene Redzepi is a good example of this. That was happening before him, too. It wasn't being led by me. I'm reporting on what chefs are doing. And I think more and more chefs are looking in hyper-local hyper, hyper and regional and looking at, well, what is the traditions? What are the land telling them that it can grow? And how can they make even the lowliest cut of meat or the lowliest vegetable like kale or the lowliest this and make it delicious and stunning and and make it a part of their cuisine? That's the future of great cooking. And that is the third plate. It's not my invention. I'm, again, reporting on what's, what's starting to happen more and more. And I think... That's a cultural shift that people are. That's going to bleed into the culture, okay. just as just as the Cheesecake Factory, you know, uh, or 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 Chipotle is an example of that being bled into the culture. That Chipotle's uh, uh, success, in part, is a a a, uh, a an example of chefs leading the way with great products. And, and they have now brilliantly, I think, democratized those ideas into a fast food chain. That's where this ends up working in, the, in later in our generation or the next generation. I don't know. I don't have a time frame on this. But ultimately, I think we're talking about a much more delicious future that's much more resilient and responsive to what the land is telling us it can grow because we have no other choice increasingly. That, that would be my summation.
1: OK, so we're going to take a break here. We'll be right back.
0: This has been part one of a two-part interview with Dan Barber on Chef's Story. Tune in next week for part two.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on radio Network.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.